ओम नमो भगवते श्रीअर्णाचलरमनाया नमस्कारम टुडे आई एम गोइंग टू स्टार्ट बाय टॉकिंग अबाउट सेल्फ प्योर अबाउट प्योर अवेयरनेस बिकॉज आई बी इट्स अ सब्जेक्ट आई बट पीपल क्वाइट ऑफ्टन आस्क क्वेश्चंस अबाउट एंड देयर आर अ फ्यू क्वेश्चंस दैट वर रिसेंटली आस्क बाय डिफरेंट पीपल ऑन ऑन youtube but touch upon this topic of self pure awareness this is a very important topic because pure awareness is what we actually are and bhagavan distinguish between pure awareness and aware, pure awareness means awareness but is not aware of anything other than itself and um and uh well in the terms he often used in tamil were uh sutatrarivu and sutarivu sutarivu literally means pointing indicating showing awareness in other words awareness of objects we can call it in english um transitive awareness sutatrarivu means awareness but is not um but doesn't point or show anything that is the pure awareness that we can call intransitive awareness that is it is awareness but is not aware of anything it's a pure awareness <clears throat> um so this is the, the this is what we actually are uh, as bhagavan explained so i'll just um touch upon a few questions that i was asked about this the first one is someone asked in deep sleep only awareness remains you said awareness knows awareness only my question is why i don't know myself in deep sleep kindly reply um the awareness that exists in sleep is pure awareness that is what we actually are pure awareness as i said it means awareness that is not aware of anything that not aware of anything means it is not aware of any objects but awareness is always aware of itself that is we cannot be aware without being aware but we are aware so being aware entails being aware of ourselves so what we actually are is pure awareness that is awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself the awareness that knows things other than itself is ego in waking and dream we rise as ego when we whenever we rise as ego we are consequently aware of ourselves as i am this body and consequently aware of uh, the semi existence of other things that is what bhagwan calls sutaribhu uh, the uh, transitive awareness but what we actually are is the intransitive awareness the, the basic awareness the awareness i am so when ego ego rises and um flourishes in waking and dream but it subsides in sleep because ego is absent in sleep there's no awareness of anything other than ourselves there is just pure awareness that the awareness i am i am is obviously not an object of awareness that is that's awareness of our own existence though due to the limitations of language we say awareness of our own existence but that doesn't mean that our existence is an object of awareness we are just aware of being we are just aware i am <clears throat> that is the real awareness 
that real awareness exists and shines in all three states, in waking, dream, and sleep. But whereas in sleep, it shines alone without any awareness of anything else, in waking and dream, it's mixed and conflated with awareness of a body, taking itself to be, I am this body, that it means ego, not pure awareness never takes itself to be out of this body. But it's when we rise as ego, uh, we, uh, we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, and we're consequently aware of other things. So what in the absence of ego in sleep, what exists is only pure awareness. And pure awareness always knows itself, but nothing other than itself. So the question is, why don't I know myself in deep sleep? The I that is asking this question is ego. Ego is absent in sleep. So obviously ego doesn't know anything in sleep. But, but and ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. In sleep, the adjunct, this body drops off and the pure I am alone remains. That pure I am is what is eternal and unchanging. So that always exists and shines unaffected by the appearance of waking dream and sleep. So what remains in sleep is only that pure awareness I am. So as pure awareness, we know ourselves not only in sleep, we know ourselves even now. But now, as ego, we are aware of ourselves as something other than what we actually are, because we are now, instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So it is ego who but is saying, I don't know myself in deep sleep. Obviously, ego doesn't know itself in deep sleep because ego was absent there. But the reality of ego, which is the pure awareness, is ever present, and that alone is what remains in sleep. So as pure awareness, we know ourselves in sleep and in waking and in dream. We know ourselves as we actually are. But as ego, we seem to exist only in waking and dream, and we're always aware of ourselves as something other than what we actually are. The question then arises, since pure awareness alone shines in sleep, why is the ego not thereby destroyed? Because it's only pure awareness is correct aware knowledge of ourself, correct awareness of ourself, whereas ego is a false awareness of ourself, awareness of ourself as I am this body. So, False awareness, incorrect awareness, wrong awareness can only be destroyed by correct awareness. Since the correct awareness shines alone in sleep, why is ego not thereby destroyed? The answer is simple. When we fall asleep, due to tiredness, we subside. Only after ego has subsided and dissolved back into its source, does pure awareness alone remain shining. So in the case of sleep, ego subsides first, and then pure awareness alone remains shining. So since ego is absent in sleep, it cannot be destroyed. What is required, this is why Bowman said, what is required in waking or dream, we as ego need to investigate ourselves to see what we actually are. When we investigate ourselves keenly enough, we as ego will experience ourselves as pure awareness. But as soon as we experience ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego because ego is, is the adjunct mixed awareness. So when ego experiences itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. That is how 
ego is destroyed. It's only that is we as ego need to experience ourselves as pure awareness. Of course, ego can never experience itself as pure awareness because as soon as it experiences itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego. But this is how the eradication or annihilation of ego is achieved. That is why Bhagavan said self-investigation is the only way to eradicate ego. Because ego is a false awareness of ourself, it can only be destroyed by correct awareness of ourself. Though correct awareness of ourself shines alone in sleep, it doesn't destroy ego because the ego is absent. So it's in the states when ego is present, we as ego need to experience ourselves as pure awareness in order to eradicate the, the, the false awareness, I am this body. That is, when we experience ourselves with pure awareness, as Bhagavan says, our experience then will be, I am I. That is, the, I is the name of pure awareness. So what am I? I am I. I'm only that pure awareness. As soon as we experience ourselves with I am I, nothing other than I, we will cease to be aware of ourselves as I am this body. So <clears throat> why is it, though we were aware of ourselves in sleep, why... Are we not? Do we not recollect exactly what we were aware of in sleep? The answer is simple. Even now, we are pure awareness. But the pure awareness, in the view of ego, pure awareness seems to be covered by the false awareness, I am this body. So because we as ego are not aware of ourselves as pure awareness now, even though pure awareness is what we always actually are, as ego, we cannot recollect the pure awareness that we experienced in sleep. Because if ego could recollect that pure awareness, it would experience it here and now, because that pure awareness didn't exist only in sleep. It exists throughout all the three states. It's eternal and immutable. Eternal means it ever exists. There's never a moment when it doesn't exist and shine. Immutable means it never undergoes any change. So pure awareness always remains as it is. As Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludunapadu, Satchit Udiyadu. Satchit means uh, being awareness or existence awareness. That is the awareness I am. Udiyadu means it does not rise. So does not rise means it never undergoes, it not, does not rise. The basic meaning is it doesn't come into existence because it always exists. Does not rise also means it also implies it doesn't undergo any change whatsoever. It always is as it is. That is why it is said be immutable. It, can't, it, can, it never undergoes any change. As Bhagavan some, often used to say, it is like the screen in a cinema. Though so many things are happening, seem to be happening on the screen, that is, the pictures projected on the screen depict uh, wars and famines and joys and sorrows and all sorts of things are depicted. So, so many things seem to be happening on the screen, but the screen is ever untouched by them. As Bhagavan used to say, the, 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 there may be a, a, a picture of a big flood may be shown on the screen, the screen isn't thereby uh, made wet. And or there may be a raging forest fire, but the screen isn't thereby burnt. So the screen is ever untouched by whatever appears upon it. Likewise, pure awareness is ever untouched by whatever appears. Because whatever appears, appears only in the view of ourself as ego. And in the view of pure awareness, there's neither ego nor anything else. There's only pure awareness. I alone am. 
as Bhagavan implied when he said in the seventh paragraph of Nana, Jatatamai uh, Ulladu Apmasarupa Vandre. What actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Apmasarupa means the real, the, the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. So Apmasarupa is pure awareness. That is what alone what actually exists. Actually exists means it always exists and never undergoes any change. <clears throat> so this is why, though we know ourselves in sleep, we don't recollect that in waking. Because if we could recollect it now, ego would thereby we'd be recollecting what we actually are, ego would thereby be destroyed. So in order to recollect what we experienced in sleep, we've got to experience ourselves as such even here and now. That is why self-investigation is necessary. So this is the main question I wanted to answer, but there are two other comments that were asked a little later on the same subject, but um, these, these uh, comments require some clarification. The first uh, one, uh, I'll read the whole comment and then I'll answer it bit by bit. What is pure awareness? If it is aware of anything, it is impure. So if awareness is aware even of itself, being aware, that is already impure since awareness has an object itself. So pure awareness is awareness of what? And anyway, as soon as you notice it, it would be it would not be pure awareness any longer, since there is a duality, awareness apparently of nothing, and the awareness of awareness. My point then is, what good is pure awareness, since it is aware of nothing, and cannot even know itself without disturbing its pure awareness? If you are it, you cannot know it, and if you know it, you're no longer it. I do not see a way out of this. Has anyone ever recognized pure awareness? If so, they are separate from it. But it also cannot be aware of itself, for, or for that matter, anything at all. And this is supposed to be the highest knowledge, no less. Knowledge of what exactly? Um, <clears throat> the, the person who asked this, this series of questions, they, they have not understood what is said about pure awareness. Pure awareness is awareness that is aware of nothing other than itself. So knowing ourself is not, doesn't make a pure awareness impure, because pure awareness by its very nature, by just being pure awareness, it knows itself. So it doesn't know itself by an act of knowing, but just by being itself, it knows itself. This is what Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadesha Undia. Tanai iritle tanai aridalam, tani rendatradal undipara, tamaya nishteye idundipara. That is, tanai iritle tanai aridalam. Being oneself alone is knowing oneself, because oneself is not two. So there are no two things, one thing to know another thing. So in the case of pure awareness, we know ourselves just by being ourselves. So to know anything other than, that is, ego knows things other than itself. Knowing anything other than ourself is an act of knowing. That is, it's a movement of our attention away from ourselves towards some other thing. So it's an act of knowing. It's a mental activity. But knowing ourselves is 
knowing of a completely different order because we don't know ourselves by an act of knowing. We know ourselves simply by being ourselves because what we actually are is pure awareness. So pure awareness is never aware of anything. It's got no object, but it's ever aware of itself just by being itself. So the, the assumptions this, this person who asked these questions are making, the assumptions this person is making are wrong assumptions. That is, awareness is aware of itself, but that doesn't mean make it impure because it itself is never an object of its awareness. That is, an object is always something other than the subject. But in the case of pure awareness, there's neither subject nor object. There's just pure awareness. And pure awareness knows itself just by being itself, not by, not by an act of knowing. <clears throat> and then they are, so pure awareness is awareness of what? It's not awareness of anything. It is just pure awareness. It's the awareness I am. So uh, pure awareness is not an object of pure awareness. Pure awareness knows itself just by being itself. And then they go on to say, anyway, as soon as you notice it, it would not be pure awareness any longer. No, that is not correct. If we notice it, if we as ego notice it, that is, if we see ourselves as, we can never see pure awareness as an object. So we can know pure awareness only as ourself. So if we as ego know pure awareness as ourself, the, the pure awareness doesn't become impure, the impure awareness ego ceases to exist. That is, as if we as ego turn our attention within to see ourselves as we actually are, we will see ourselves, we will see that what we actually are is just pure awareness, and thereby we will cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. Um, so uh, pure awareness knowing itself is not a duality, but there's no two things there, one thing knowing another thing. As Bhagavan says, knowing oneself is being oneself because oneself is not is devoid of two. So there are no two things there, oneself knowing another self, one pure awareness knowing another pure awareness. That, it's not like that at all. Pure awareness knows itself just by being itself. Um, and then he goes on to say, awareness apparently of nothing, and there is duality, awareness and apparently of nothing, and awareness of awareness. <clears throat> awareness of awareness, that is, the, the language makes it sound dual, dualistic, but we need to understand that we can know pure awareness only by being pure awareness. And when we remain as pure awareness, then, then we go beyond duality, because duality is only for ego. As soon as we rise as ego, we know ourselves as I am this body, and we consequently know other things. So ego is the subject, and the body and all other things are objects known by it. So there, there is there, the basic duality, that subject-object duality. But that exists only when we rise as ego. When we remain as pure awareness, there is no duality because there's nothing other than pure awareness. Um, my point then is, what good is pure awareness since it is aware of nothing? To say that pure awareness is awareness of nothing is not correct. Pure awareness is awareness of the only thing. The only thing that actually exists is pure awareness. I am. So, but it's not, it's not, but that is the very, the, 
as I say, the language makes it sound dualistic. So pure awareness is just awareness. It's not awareness of anything. It's awareness that is the only thing and that knows itself as the only thing. Um, uh, since it is pure, aware of nothing and cannot even know itself without disturbing its pure awareness. It cannot know itself as an object, but it can know itself by being itself. And it doesn't thereby cease to be pure awareness because it, pure awareness is immutable, so it can never cease to be pure awareness. <clears throat> and then he, this person goes on to say, if you are it, you cannot know it. That's not correct. If you are it, if you remain as pure awareness, you thereby know pure awareness just by being pure awareness, not as by an act of knowledge or not, not as an object, but you know it just by being it. And if you know it, you are no longer it. No, if you know it, then you're nothing other than it. So that, that there's a complete misunderstanding. I do not see a way out of this. Has anyone ever recognized pure awareness? Pure awareness cannot be an object, so it's not something that we can recognize. When we know, when we, we can know pure awareness only as ourself, and when we know ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be anyone. We remain as the only one, namely ego, namely pure awareness. So pure awareness can never be known by ego. But though pure awareness can never be known by ego, the task that Bhagavan has set us as ego is to know ourselves as pure awareness. Because when we as ego try to know what we actually are, we will thereby come to know ourselves as pure awareness. But as soon as we know ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego. So it can never be said that ego knows itself as pure awareness, because as soon as it knows itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego. But though ego can never know itself as pure awareness, it must try to know itself as pure awareness, because it is only by knowing itself as pure awareness that it will cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness, which is what it all, which is what we always actually are. Um, but the, the person goes on to say, but it also cannot be aware of itself, or for that matter, anything at all. And this is supposed to be the highest knowledge, no less. Knowledge of what exactly? Not knowledge of anything, just knowledge I am. There's no, there's no object of knowledge there. And then a, a few days later, the same person wrote another comment. Philosophy, Sartre in particular, would deny that there's anything such as intransitive awareness. Firstly, the, the idea that philosophy den denies something, it can, that is, philosophy, there are numerous different philosophical views. Some philosophers may deny something, but it doesn't, just because some philosophers deny something, doesn't mean all philosophers deny something. In, um, <clears throat> in Sanskrit, the, the, the term in Sanskrit that is the closest equivalent to philosophy is darshana. Darshana means seeing or view. So every, every philosopher sorry, every philosophy is a particular view, a particular way of seeing things. So different philosophers see things differently. So they each argue from their own particular perspective. The philosophy that Bhagavan taught us, the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta, 
is a very deep and subtle philosophy, but m- the majority of philosophers will not have the, the clarity and subtlety of mind to understand correctly, because in order to understand Advaita, the, the pure Advaita as taught by Bhagavan, in order to understand it correctly, we need to have an inward-looking mind, only to the extent to which we turn our attention within, can we begin to recognize that what we actually are is pure awareness, intransitive awareness. If we've never tried to turn our attention inwards, if our mind has always been going outwards, naturally we won't recognize the the existence of pure awareness. So the majority of philosophers, like Sartre, they have outward-going minds. They're looking outwards and philosophizing about the outward appearance. Whereas Bhagavan is asking us to look inwards. So Bhagavan's philosophy is not about outward appearances. It is about the inward reality. Because out whatever anything other than ourself seems to exist only in our views. So we cannot know the reality by looking outwards. It's only by looking back at ourselves to see who am I, but we can see what is the reality. So if we have never tried to turn our attention within to see what we ourselves actually are, our mind will be still relatively gross. So the very subtle philosophy taught by Bhagavan will not be appreciated by the majority of philosophers because their minds are too outward going. So they won't be able to see things as Bhagavan is asking us to see things. But most of them will not even be willing to try to turn within. So we don't have to we don't have to go by the views of others. We need to try to understand what Bhagavan has taught us and to see for ourselves the truth in what he said. If any philosopher, Sartre or any other philosopher, denies that there is um, such a thing as intransitive awareness, intransitive awareness means pure awareness, they have they clearly haven't deeply considered their experience in sleep. Because in sleep, we are clearly aware, but we are not aware of anything. We, why do we say we're aware in sleep? Because we, are, we all know that there are three states of experience. There's waking, there's dream, and there's sleep. But if we, <coughs> if we were not aware in sleep, all we would be aware of would be two states. We would not be aware of any gap between alternating states of waking and dream. But the fact is, we are all very clearly aware there is a third state, a state in which we are not aware of anything. So the fact that we are aware of having been in a state in which we were not aware of anything means we must have been aware of being in that state. If we were not aware of being in that state, we wouldn't be aware that that any such state existed. So it would seem to us that waking follows dream, follows waking, follows dream, just one after another. There wouldn't seem to be any gap between the successive states of waking and dream. But we all clearly know there is a gap, a state in which we are not aware of anything. so since we're aware of having been in a state in which we were not aware of anything, we were clearly aware in that state. We weren't aware of anything, but we were aware. We were aware, I am. So when we wake up and say, I slept, that clearly shows our knowledge of having been in a state 
called sleep. That state we call sleep is the state in which we are not aware of anything, right? That is, there are no objects or phenomena but we are aware of in sleep, but we are still aware. So sleep is a state of pure awareness, intransitive awareness. We couldn't be aware of anything without being aware, but we can be aware without being aware of anything. Being aware of anything is, in, is transitive awareness. Being aware without being aware of anything is intransitive awareness. So that is the basic awareness. That is the real awareness. That is the awareness I am. That is what we actually are. So if philosophers choose to deny it, that's not a problem for us because it's clearly in our experience. So let anyone deny some deny it. But it's clearly if we deeply and carefully consider our experience and if we make the effort to in waking a dream to turn our attention within, that is the more we go deep in this practice of self-investigation, the more blindingly obvious it will be to us. But in sleep, we did exist as pure awareness, pure intransitive awareness. Um, uh, awareness, and then this person goes on to say, awareness must be of something, or what is it awareness of? Yes, the majority of philosophers, particularly nowadays, they say consciousness or awareness must always be uh, conscious of something or aware of something. But they haven't considered deeply enough their experience in sleep, and they have never tried to turn their attention within. If they tried to turn their attention within, they would at least have some inkling of the fact that there is awareness that is devoid of awareness of anything pure awareness. Uh, and the person goes on to write, as soon as you're aware of even just being aware, that awareness is an object. No, we are all aware of being aware, but awareness can never, how can awareness be an object? Awareness, objects have forms, have characteristics, but awareness has no form, no characteristic. We are just aware. So awareness can never be an object. Um, uh, Awareness, that is, the subject is a form of awareness, it's an impure form of awareness, but the subject is awareness, uh, but the real awareness is the reality of the subject, the pure awareness I am. Ego is the impure awareness I am this body, that is the subject. So uh, neither ego nor pure awareness can ever be an object of, uh, of, of knowledge. Um, some classical uh, Advaitins, if you listen to their lectures, they'll say that ego is, a, is an object of, uh, for pure awareness. That is a complete misunderstanding. Ego is, ego is the subject. It can never be an object. Anything that is an object is something other than ego. Ego identifies itself with a set of objects, namely this bundle of five sheaths called body. But Though ego identifies itself with objects, it itself is not an object, it is the subject, and the subject can never be an object. And the reality of ego is pure awareness, so when even ego cannot be an object of awareness, so much less can pure awareness ever be an object of awareness. We can know pure awareness only by being pure awareness. Um, and what knows ego is not pure awareness, E what knows ego is only ego. Ego seems to exist only in its own view. In the view of pure awareness, there's no such thing as ego at all. As Bhagavan says in verse 
seven or in Bhagavan implies in verse 17 of Upadesh Undia. Manatin Uruve, Maravaju Chava, Manamenamondrile Undipara, Markum Derakumidundi Para. That is Manatin Uruve Maravaju Chava. If we investigate the form of the mind without forgetfulness, that is without pramad or inattentiveness, manamenum andrile, there's no such thing as mind at all. So if we look at us, we seem to be mind or ego so long as we're looking outwards. But if we turn our attention back within to see who am I, we will find we will never find any such thing as ego. As Bhagavan says, Tedinal Otum Piticum in verse 25 of Uladunapti. With thought, it takes flight. Because we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. If we look at ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. Has anyone ever seen this ego? Has anyone ever found such a thing as ego? No. It's only when we're looking at other things that we seem to be ego. When we look at ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. That's what Bhagavan means in that verse 17 of Rupadesh Undia. Um, if we investigate the form of the mind, that means if we investigate ego without forgetfulness, there's no such thing as ego at all. Uh, this is the direct path for everyone, whomsoever. Um, and then this person goes on to say, um, uh, as soon as you're aware of even just being aware, now awareness is the object and you're observing awareness. Who is observing awareness? Is there one observe awareness observing another awareness? Obviously not. Even as ego, we, we, the awareness is not, a, that is, we as ego are a form of awareness, but we are not an object of, a, the awareness that we actually are is not an object of our awareness. So ego is aware of itself just by being ego, by mistaking itself to be anything, something other than what it actually is. And then this person goes on to say, I do not think we are aware of our sleep. I think we infer it later. This is what many people think, because they do not consider, firstly, they do not consider the matter carefully enough. Secondly, they do not try to put into practice self-investigation. Even by, by manana, that's by carefully considering our experience in sleep, we can clearly understand that we are aware in sleep. That, that, but that clarity of understanding becomes so much deeper when we begin to put this self-investigation into practice. So the real understanding, the real clarity comes only from to the extent to which we go deep in the practice of self-investigation. So anyone who says that we are not aware of ourselves in sleep, firstly, has not considered the matter carefully enough. And secondly, has not try, even begun to try to investigate what they actually are. Or if they've tried to investigate what they actually are, they we cannot investigate what why is it so important to understand the nature of pure awareness? Because if we if we don't understand pure awareness is what we actually are, if we don't even have an inkling of an understanding of what we actually are, when we begin to investigate ourselves, we'll be investigating something other than what we actually are. So understanding that we are pure awareness is the starting point of self-investigation. Without that understanding, we really cannot even begin to investigate ourselves. That's why this is such an important topic and why Bhagavan dwelt upon it so much. There are, um, uh, 
9, 10, 11, 12, 13, all these um, five verses of Uludunapadu, not so much, in 9 it's rather indirectly, but particularly from 10 to 13, these four verses, but these four verses are a continuation from verse 9. These verses Bhagavan is talking about distinguishing the impure awareness from the pure awareness. So we need to understand what Bhagavan says in these verses, because this is crucial to putting self-investigation into practice. Um, and then this person goes on to say, um, I think we infer it, we can recall our dreams, and we might say that we did not dream all night. So there must have been a period of sleep. But that does not mean we were aware of our awareness. If we were not aware in sleep, we would not be, a, we would be, a, as I said, if we were aware only of waking and dream, we couldn't even infer the existence of sleep because our experience would be a continuous and unbroken succession of states of waking and dream. So we wouldn't be aware of any gap between them, but we are clearly aware of a gap. So clearly we are aware in sleep. It's, it just takes a little bit of careful consideration to understand this. Why many people find it difficult to understand this? Because they take awareness to be awareness of something. As many modern philosophers say, awareness must all, or consciousness must always be awareness of something. So long as you think like that, then you'll fail to recognize that the pure awareness that exists in sleep. But if we go beyond this wrong idea, if we're ready to, to question this incorrect belief that awareness must always be awareness of something, if we're ready to question such an assumption, then we can begin to recognize, yes, in sleep there was awareness. Um, also, the fact that we are not aware of the world while asleep is particularly unconvincing when it is argued that the objective world arises when ego arises. This is far too solipsistic for my taste. We blink and the sun disappears for us. No one believes the sun disappears. That is, this is very difficult for people to understand unless they are ready to accept the basic teaching of Bhagavan. But what we now take to be our waking state is actually just a dream. So long as we are dreaming, the dream seems to be perfect. We seem to be awake. The dream world seems to be perfectly real. And in dream, if someone were to say, if you don't, if you don't see the world, it doesn't exist we would probably object like this person objects. But when we wake up from a dream, we clearly recognize all oh, that entire dream world, everything that I experienced in dream, existed only in my own mind. So now when I'm not seeing that dream world, it doesn't exist. Nobody supposes that the dream world continues to exist after we wake up, or no, no sensible person will assume, will, will, uh, assume so. so because we take this waking state to be something other than a dream, we think this waking state has an independent reality, and therefore this waking world exists even when we're not aware of it. But why should we believe that our present state is anything other than a dream? If our present state, uh, if, if there was, is there any evidence in our present state that this is not a dream? 
obviously there isn't because whatever we experience in waking we could equally well experience in dream so there is not and there could never be any evidence uh any adequate evidence but we are now not dreaming so since there's no evidence that waking is anything other than a dream why should we assume that a waking is something other than a dream so bhagavan if we want to follow bhagavan uh, Bhagavan's path correctly, we need to be ready to question all our assumptions. This person who wrote these questions is making so many assumptions and isn't questioning those assumptions. So why should we believe if why should we believe that our present state is anything but a dream? And if this is nothing but a dream, that, that means the world doesn't exist independent of our view of it. So when we are not aware of the world in sleep, it does not exist. That is why Bhagavan was emphatic about this. The body, the, in sleep, ego doesn't exist. Therefore, mind, body, world, nothing exists in sleep. What exists in sleep is only the one ever-shining reality, I am. That is pure awareness. Um, similarly, we sleep and the world does not disappear. Where is the evidence that one can see pure awareness? The evidence is our own experience in sleep. If we consider our own experience, that is that is evidence. But that evidence will be evident only to those who have a sufficiently subtle uh, view. And we can gain that subtle view only by looking within more and more and more. The more we look within, the more we follow this path of self-investigation, the more clear the evidence will be but what we actually are is just pure awareness. <clears throat> and the person goes on to say, what evidence is there that one could see pure awareness, or failing that, but awareness of nothing exists? And so what if we, uh, and so what if we can have pure awareness of nothing at all? What does that prove exactly? Well, first investigate yourself, and then you'll see what this proves. What it proves is, well, the proof, the proof lies in the pudding. First, we have to actually put this self-investigation into practice. Then when, the, when ego is uh, annihilated and the, 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 the pure awareness I am alone remains, that is Swayam Prakash, it's self-shining, it is self-evident. No other evidence is necessary. But in order to see this clearly, we need to experience ourselves as such. So knowing what is pure awareness, experiencing ourselves as pure awareness is the aim of self-investigation. So if we do not understand these basic teachings of Bhagavan, we, we, we can't go very deep in this path. So we have to be ready to carefully to read what Bhagavan says, what Bhagavan has taught us attentively, that is called the attentive reading or studying of what Bhagavan has said is what is called sravana. We need to think about it deeply and carefully. That is what is called manana. And most importantly of all, we need to try to put it into practice. That is nidityasana. So without proper sravana, manana, nidityasana, we 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 can't 
gain anything very much from Bhagavan. We, we, if we really want to be benefited by the great treasure that Bhagavan has given us, we need to firstly read what he has written very carefully, very attentively. Then we need to think about it very carefully. And most importantly of all, to the extent to which we've understood it, we need to put it into practice. The more we put it into practice, the more our understanding of it will uh, grow deeper, and the deeper we will thereby be able to go into the practice. So the practice is all important. Otherwise, if people aren't willing to practice this, whatever we say about pure awareness or anything else, they just will not grasp it. There were so many people who came to Bhagavan, but they they were not able to grasp what it was that Bhagavan was talking about because they, their, their minds were too outward going. That's why often when people came and asked Bhagavan questions, he just kept, in many cases, he just kept quiet because he knew that whatever he says, these people are not yet, yet they're neither willing nor able to understand because their minds are too outward going. Of course, Though Bhagavan keeps quiet, it doesn't mean he's giving up on anyone. Bhagavan knows he's, he is in the heart of each and every one of us, and he is slowly, slowly working in our heart, purifying our mind and preparing us to come to understand this and to put this, give us the love to put this into practice. So even though Bhagavan may outwardly keep quiet, inwardly he's doing what needs to be done. But just, and how does he do that? Just by being as he actually is. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachalaramanaya. So, Shalini, would you like to ask the questions now? Yes, there are about uh, six, seven questions. Right. Um, the first one is, do we have to destroy each and every one of our vasanas before we can capture the fortress of our heart? As Bhagwan seems to be implying in paragraph 11 of Nanyar, because my vasanas seem insurmountable, particularly the vasana of Debhiman, De Abhiman, the inclination of taking this body to be I. I cannot even fathom how I can ever cease taking the body to be I and to stop being troubled by all the problems that it seems to be facing. Thank you. Okay. Um, yes, the analogy Bhagavan gives of. Um, in, in at the end of the eleventh paragraph of uh, enemies in the fortress, um, that is an analogy. In, in the case of the analogy, we have to cut down the enemy one by one, but we shouldn't stretch analogies too far. The main point is, but we we need to that is the what Bhagavan is illustrating by that analogy. We need to be persistent in this practice of self-investigation. As and when each vasana arises, we need to hold fast to self-attentiveness and thereby cut that vasana down. That doesn't mean we're destroying that vasana. The same vasana may arise again, again and again and again. But the more we hold on to self-attentiveness, the more we are weakening the vasanas. But that is a very nice analogy. So we shouldn't that we should understand that analogy properly. That is what that analogy is alluding to, is um, a fortress that is being besieged. In a fortress, if, if if a fortress is being besieged, if the 
um, if the uh, army inside the fortress, if they have plenty of food and water, there's no need for them to come out of the fortress. They'll remain in the fortress and uh, continue fighting. But if they run out of food and water, then in, in order to get food and water, which they need to survive, they'll have to keep on coming out of the fortress to try to get food and water. In the case of Vasanas, Vasanas depend upon that if the, the food and water that nourishes and sustains Vasanas is, is our attention. That is when Vasanas draw our attention out towards anything else, any other thing, any Vishaya, that's why Vishaya means any object or phenomenon. So Bhagavan talked about Vishaya Vasanas, that the inclination to attend to or to experience or to seek happiness in any object or phenomenon, in other words, anything other than ourselves. So the Vasanas are the inclination to attend to other things. If instead of following those inclinations, we cling to self-attentiveness, we are thereby gradually weakening the Vasanas. And the more we weaken one Vasana in this way, the more we are weakening all Vasanas, because by clinging to self-attentiveness, we are, we are strengthening the Sat-Vasana. Sat-Vasana means the being Vasana. In other words, the Vasana, the inclination to hold on to our own being and thereby be as we actually are, that is the Sat-Vasana. So the more we cling to self-attentiveness, the more we are strengthening the Sat-Vasana. To the extent to which Sat-Vasana is strengthened, the Shaya Vasanas collectively are weakened. So, though according to the analogy, we're cutting down the enemy one by one, uh, we shouldn't take it quite that far. That is, every time a vasana rises, we need to cling to self-attentiveness, thereby we're weakening that vasana, and by weakening one vasana, we're weakening the whole army of vasanas. So, we, 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 we need to understand how to apply that. But regarding the doubt about whether it is possible, Bhagavan, the whole of the 10th and 11th paragraph, Bhagavan is reassuring us that it is possible. In the first, in the 10th paragraph, he begins by saying, even though Vishaya Vasanas, um, which come from time immemorial, rise in countless numbers like ocean waves, they will all be destroyed when Swarupa Dhyana increases and increases. Swarupa dhyana means meditation or contemplation on our own real nature. In other words, self-attentiveness. Being self-attentiveness is what Bhagavan, be, sorry, being self-attentive is what Bhagavan refers to here as Swarupa dhyana. So he's, he, he assures us here, they, however strong they may be, they will all be destroyed if we, if we cling firmly to Swarupa dhyana, self-attentiveness. Without giving room even to the doubting thought, uh, so many vasanas ceasing or being dissolved, is it possible to be only a Swarupa? It is necessary to cling tenaciously to Swarupa Dhyana. However great a sinner one may be, if instead of lamenting and weeping, I am a sinner, how am I going to be saved? One completely rejects the thought that one is a sinner, and is steadfast in self-attentiveness, in Swarupa Dhyana, one will certainly be reformed or transformed. In other words, we'll be transformed into what we actually are. So Bhagavan is giving us the assurance there. But what is necessary is that we cling firmly to that self-attentiveness. 
And then he goes on to say in the next paragraph, the 11th paragraph, as long as Vishaya Vasanas exist within the mind, so long is the investigation who am I necessary. The investigation who am I means Varupa Dhyana, self-attentiveness, as he makes clear um, elsewhere in Nana, in the 16th paragraph, he makes that very clear what is what he means by Atmavichara. He says, the name Atmavichara is only for keeping the mind always in one, always on oneself. So keep, in other words, keeping our attention fixed on, on ourself alone is what is called Atmavichara. Atmavichara is a name for that alone, for that self-attentiveness or Swarupa Dhyana. As and when thoughts appear, then and there it is necessary to annihilate them all by vicharana in the very place from which they rise. Again, vicharana means self-attentiveness. So by clinging to self-attentiveness, as and when the thought as and when the thoughts arise, if we're clinging to self-attentiveness, we'll be annihilating them then and there in the very place from which they arise. If we lose our hold on self-attentiveness and allow ourselves to be carried away by those thoughts, then, then we are not annihilating them. But if we cling firmly to self-attentiveness, we are thereby annihilating them in the very place from which they rise. And then he goes on to say, not attending to anything other than oneself, anything other, that implies anything other than oneself, is vairagya or nirasa. Vairagya means dispassion, nirasa means desirelessness. They both mean the same thing. So Bhagavan defines vairagya as not attending to anything other than oneself. And then he goes on to say, not leaving or letting go of oneself is jnana. Uh, in truth, these two, vairagya and jnana, are just one. So how can we remain without attending to anything other than ourself? Only by holding on to ourself, only by not letting go of ourself, we can avoid attending to other things. If we let go of ourselves, our attention will go outwards and um, uh, the Vairagya is thereby dissipated. Um, and then he gives an analogy how to apply this. Just as pearl divers tying stones to their waists and sinking pick up pearls that are found at the bottom of the ocean, so each one sinking deep within oneself with Vairagya may obtain the pearl of oneself. So here he's comparing the vairagya to the stone, but uh, the stones that pearl divers tied to their waist. That is, without tying stones to their waist, they cannot sink deep enough to get the pearl. Likewise, without vairagya, we cannot go deep enough within. So vairagya, not attending to anything other than ourself, by clinging firmly to self-attentiveness, is absolutely necessary because then only can we um, uh, obtain the, the Atma Mutu, the, pearl, the, Atma, the, the self pearl, the pearl that is our self, in other words, our own real nature. Um, uh, <clears throat> if one clings, uh, this is a very important sentence, if one clings fast to uninterrupted Swarupa Smarana until one attains, uh, attains Swarupa, that alone is sufficient. Swarupa means our real nature. In other words, the pure awareness I am, which is what we actually are. So if we cling firmly to uninterrupted Swarupa Smarana, Swarupa Smarana means remembrance of our own real nature, pure awareness. In other words, 
self-remembrance, if we cling to un fast to uninterrupted self-remembrance until we attain what we actually are, Swarupa, that alone is sufficient. Adu Andre Podom, he's so emphatic here. So however, however, um, however strong our vasanas may be, if we cling firmly to self-remembrance, he says he, that what we should aim for is uninterrupted self-remembrance. Most of us probably cannot cling to it uninterruptedly, but we should cling to self-remembrance as much as possible. Self-remembrance obviously is another name for self-attentiveness. So as much as possible, we should cling to self-attentiveness. The more we cling to self-attentiveness, the more it will become second nature to us and will uh, the self-attentiveness will persists throughout other activities. And to the extent to which we do so, um, to that extent, we are progressing fast on this path. So that so that's self-remembrance or self-attentiveness, that alone is sufficient. But we have to cling fast to it. We have to hold on to it firmly. And then he gives this analogy. So long as enemies are within the fortress, they will be continually coming out from it. If one is continuously cutting down or destroying all of them, as and when they come, the fortress will eventually be captured. Here the fortress is our own heart. The enemies in the fortress are our Vishaya Vasanas. So if if we if as and when the Vishaya Vasanas come out, if we if we cling firmly to self-attentiveness, we are thereby cutting them down. Uh, and by by clinging to self-attentiveness more and more and more, eventually the fortress will be captured. So that is we we shouldn't we all have strong. I mean, why 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 are, why is Bhagavan's path necessary? His path is necessary only because we've got Vishaya Vasanas. As Bhagavan said, so long as the Vishaya Vasanas are there in the mind, so long this investigation of who am I is necessary. So Bhagavan's path is necessary only because we have Vishaya Vasanas. So Bhagavan knows very well how strong our Vishaya Vasanas are. But however strong they may be, if we if we have the the mind to, the will to do so, we can try again and again to cling to self-attentiveness and slowly, 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 we will surely weaken the Vishaya Vasanas and eventually the fortress of our heart will be ours. We will surrender ourselves completely to Bhagavan and merge in him. Okay. The next question is that on Facebook, Someone posted a quote by Ramana, there are no others. Whatever you see outside is your own reflection. Your mind is creating all this. <coughs> the question is, is reflection the same as projection? And the second question is, how to sink into awareness, the self? I'm still clueless because nothing seems to be happening if I turn my attention to I am. Do I observe the ego? Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, what was uh, uh, I? I listened to the question, and when I got we got to the end, I forgot the first. How to start? Yeah. Um, uh, um, the question is: There's a quote of Ravana, um, which is posted on Facebook, um, and the quote is: "There are no others." Whatever you see outside is your own reflection. 
your mind is creating all this, is reflection the same as projection? Okay. Um, yeah, these are just different ways of expressing the same thing. We, we don't know. That is what Bhagavan said. Bhagavan very, very seldom spoke in English. So the majority of what is recorded in English was, is, is a translation of what Bhagavan said in Tamil. So we don't know the exact words Bhagavan said in Tamil. Um, projection, um, reflection, in this context, they mean the same, yes. That is, as Bhagavan explained, what that is, sometimes when Bhagavan explained how this world appears, he used the cinema analogy, as he does, for example, in verse 6 of Varanacha Ashtakam. So in that analogy, that when Bhagavan explained this analogy, he said the film in the cinema projector is like the vasanas. So whatever we see outside is a projection of our own vasanas. It's our own vasanas, our vasanas, vishaya vasanas are the seeds that sprout as vishayas. Vishayas means all objects, phenomena. So this world is nothing but uh, the sprouting of our own vishaya vasanas. In that sense, it, it is both a projection of our of ourself and it's a reflection of ourself because it's a, it's it's our own vasanas that we are seeing outside. Vasanas means our inclinations. But, our likes, dislikes, and so on, but we appear, we see outside of this world. So, um, yeah, it, in in effect, in this in this context, reflection and uh, and um, projection mean the same. And as Bhagavan said, there are no others because it's only in the view of our self as ego that there seem to be others. But all those others are nothing but ourselves. Because in in a dream, when 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 we're dreaming, everything that we see in a dream is nothing but our own dream. The dreaming mind sees itself as the dream world. So we are seeing ourselves as the dream world. That's why Bhagavan says in verse twenty six of Uludhunaptu, if ego comes, handeyundayan anaitamundahum. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Ahandeyindrail indruanaitam. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ahandeyayavamam. Ego itself is everything. Why does he say ego itself is everything? Because what we as ego are seeing ourselves as all these things. So nothing has any existence independent of ego. So ego sees itself as all this multiplicity. And then he concludes that verse by saying, therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. And then I think the next part was something about um, uh, self-investigation, wasn't it? Could, could you just read the wording of that again, Shalini? Just so I get the wording correct. Yeah, the second part of the question is, how to sink into awareness, the self, I'm still clueless. Nothing seems to be happening if I turn my attention to I am. Do I observe the ego? Thank you for listening and answering my questions. If anything were happening, happenings are all things that happen within, in the view of ego. So we, we are not turning our attention inwards to see anything happening. We turn our attention outwards to see things happening. We are turning our attention inwards to get relief from all happenings. So 
all that is required is to turn our attention back towards ourselves, to be self-attentive. The more we hold on to self-attentiveness, the more the ego will ego will subside. But even to even say ego will subside, that that is not a the subsidence of ego is not a happening. It is the cessation of all happening. Happening of, happens when we rise as ego. We, the first happening is the rising of ego. And as soon as we rise as ego, we project all this and see all these things happening, which are nothing but ourself, as Bhagavan says. We are seeing uh, ourselves as all these events of the world, all the wars and famines and pandemics and uh, strife and joys and sorrows and everything of life. We are just seeing ourselves as all this. Um, but if when we look within, ego will subside. That means all happening will come to an end. The subsidence of the rising of ego is the rising of all happenings. The subsidence of ego is the cessation of all happenings. So, to the extent to which we look within, to uh, attend to ourselves, to that extent we will subside. And to the extent to which we subside, all happenings will subside along with us. So we shouldn't be expecting anything to happen. We are looking within more and more and more. And eventually, we will lose ourselves in the clarity of pure awareness. Losing ourselves in that clarity from our perspective here may seem to be a happening, but actually it's the final end of all happenings. So self Self-realization or self-knowledge or eradication of ego is not a happening. It is an ending of all happenings. And when they all happen, when ego ends, it'll be clear that nothing had ever happened in the first place, because the ultimate truth is ajata. All things that happen happen only in the view of ego. But when we investigate this ego, we investigate who am I? We find there's no such thing as ego at all. Manamenomondrile. Undi Parad, Bhagavan says in verse 17 of Upadesh Undiya that I referred to earlier. So by looking within, we see there's no such thing as ego at all. Since everything that happens happens only in the view of ego, without when, when it is clearly seen that ego has never existed, it will be clear, but nothing has ever happened. So the ultimate truth is ajata. So how this is of practical relevance, we shouldn't be expecting something to happen. We just look within to see we're not looking for anything new. As Bhagavan said, jnana is not a new knowledge to be attained. If jnana were a new knowledge to be obtained, whatever is gained newly will be lost. So if we gained uh, uh, jnana as a new knowledge, we will lose it sooner or later. What we are investigating what we are trying to know is not something new not something that we do not know already but the one thing that we always know namely i am so there's nothing new to be gained in this path all we have to do is to lose ego and everything else when we lose ego everything else will be lost along with it and what will remain is what always exists and shines namely i am and that alone is the reality So to follow this path, we need to be very patient. Because why ego doesn't dissolve back into its source immediately? Because we still have too much 
desire and attachment for things other than ourselves. So we have to persevere in this practice, just patiently attending to ourselves, not waiting for something exciting to happen, just attending to what is ever-existent. And the more we attend to what is ever-existent, namely I am, the more we will thereby subside and all happenings will come to an end. I hope that's a, a clear and adequate answer to that question. The next question is, my brother passed away three days ago. I think with his chant particular mantras, and I'm wondering whether there are mantras I can chant or any guidance which might help the soul at this time. Firstly, I'm very sorry to hear about your brother, but um, whoever appears in our life is given to us by Bhagavan, and sooner or later they'll be taken by Bhagavan. So, um, Whatever happens in our life, though it may cause us great grief and great um, sorrow, ultimately everything is happening as it's meant to happen for the good of all. Just like you are in the hands of, uh, uh, under the care of Bhagavan, your brother is also under the care of Bhagavan. So Bhagavan is taking care of him. So you need not do anything for your brother. That is, he's beyond your uh, your being able to do anything for him now. All you, if, but if you want to do the best for your brother and for all, you should follow this path that Bhagavan has taught us. This is the, the greatest good. Of course, it, <coughs> if you go to the sastras, the sastras will say, "Do this karma, do that karma." You have to, for the departed soul, you have to do this karma or that karma. Or if you're not a Hindu, in every religion they have certain things that you do for the, for the deceased prayers or whatever, um, church services or whatever it is. I mean, in every religion they they have certain rites and rituals connected with the death and maybe remembering every year the, the death anniversary or whatever it is. All these are okay at a certain level, but I mean, these are appropriate. These are all good things. When once someone asked Bhagavan, if we do um, these, these karmas for the departed souls, is it good? Bhagavan said, yes, it is good for the one who does it. In other words, if we do good karmas, we will we will reap we will reap the benefit of our karmas. But ultimately, we need to go beyond all karmas. So the best thing to do, rather than depending on any mantras or any other anything like that, depend on Bhagavan. Trust the Bhagavan. But the, the same Bhagavan who is taking care of you is taking care of your uh, your brother and taking care of everyone because he is our own reality. He is what is shining in the heart of each and every one of us as I am. So it's his very nature to take care of us. So our aim is to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan. So in order to surrender ourselves to him, we need to surrender all our cares at and concerns about everything else to him. He can take care of all these things far better than we can. So let us forget all about mantras and tantras and all these uh, things. Let us trust in Bhagavan. Let us try to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan by following this path of self-investigation. That is the greatest good we can do to both to our living relatives and our departed relatives and to all people, to all sentient beings, the greatest good we can do 
is by following this path that Bhagavan has taught us. I, I hope that was an adequate answer to your question. I actually think that was really helpful, uh, Michael. Mm. Um, okay. Um, I think that Bincy would like to ask a question. Bincy? Yes, hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, thank you, Michael, for um, sharing your time with us and answering questions. Um, so I'm just pretty new to this, uh, just a few months into looking into Advaita. So I've seen a few talks and all that. So my question is, I just want to understand what exactly is enlightenment. So is that, or, um, you know, uh, realization, is that like a state that you get into? Or like, for example, in deep sleep, you get into a state and then you come out of it. And is that different than to enlightenment? What happens to the ego? Does it just go away? What happens there really? And what happens to that person when he comes out of it? What is that state is what I want to understand. <clears throat> That's okay. Thank you. Okay. What is called enlightenment is losing yeah. ourselves in the one ever-existing light of pure awareness, which is what we always actually are. So that is the, the real light is the light of pure awareness. That is, we, we, the physical light is the means by which we see physical objects. But in order to be aware of anything, of any objects, physical or, or mental, the, the light by which we know the physical light and all other and everything else is the light of the mind. Light here means awareness. The, 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 the mind's awareness is the means by which we know the physical light and everything else. But from where does the mind derive its light of awareness? It derives it from the one real awareness, the one real light, I am. That is, ego, mind or ego is the false awareness, I am this body. In that false awareness, that is a mixture of chit and jada. Chit means the pure awareness, the light of pure awareness, I am. Jada means what is not aware, that's referring to this body. So ego is sometimes referred to as chit jada granti, that is, granti means not. So the not formed by the entanglement of what is aware with what is not aware, that is ego. But what is real is only the light of pure awareness, I am. So ego is a mixture of what is real and what is unreal. Ego seems to be that, that as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body. <coughs> but we seem, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body only when we're looking outwards away from ourselves. If instead of looking outwards, we try to turn our attention back within to see the light of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart as our own being, I am, the more we attend to I am, which is the light of pure awareness, the more we will subside and eventually we will dissolve completely in that. So we will lose ourselves in the light. When we lose ourselves in the light, the light alone remains. That is what is called enlightenment. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
is, is that a, a, a sufficiently clear answer to your question? Yeah, my only my comment is that um, it, this is so hard to understand for a lay person. How are they going to understand this? How you quickly rack your well, brains around this? <laughs> that is so yeah. hard. Oh. This is very deep and very subtle. We can, yeah. when we come to Bhagavan and read his teachings, we can understand conceptually to a certain extent. But to really understand Bhagavan clearly and correctly, we need to put what he put, taught into practice. But the practice he taught us is turning our mind back towards the light, the light of pure awareness I am. The more we turn our mind towards this light of awareness I am, the more we will thereby, that, that is, so to speak, we are bathing in light. So the more we look within, the more we attend to ourselves, to the light of pure awareness, the, the more our mind will be bathed in clarity. So these things, our mind will become subtler and more refined, and we'll be able to understand these things more and more clearly. So when we come, we can only understand to a limited extent, because we're trying to understand conceptually. It's necessary, it's very important at first to have a clear conceptual understanding of this, because if we don't understand but what we actually are, is just pure awareness and not this body or mind or any of these other things that we take ourselves to be. If we don't understand that, we won't be able to investigate ourselves. If we think we have a body and we're asked to investigate ourselves, we'll be studying anatomy and physiology and so on. Uh, that is not self-investigation. If we think we have a mind, we'll be looking at the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and trying to understand them. But we're not this body, we're not this mind. What we are is only I am. So that is what needs to be investigated. That is the light. That is the true light, the light that illumines the world. Uh, the light that illumines the mind, enabling the mind to illumine the world. So let us turn our mind back towards the light. The more we face the light, the more we will thereby be, uh, our mind will thereby be purified and clarified, and these things will become clearer and clearer to us. But you're right. This is, what Bhagavan is talking about is a very, though Bhagavan's teachings are very simple, we shouldn't be fooled by their simplicity because they're very simple, but at the same time very deep and very subtle. So to really understand Bhagavan is possible only by trying our best to put this into practice. Of course, we need to understand his words first in order to be able to put this into practice. Um, and the more we put this into practice, the more we will thereby gain clarity, and then the more meaningful his words will become to us. So we can understand his words only to a certain extent without putting them into practice. The more we put them into practice, the more meaningful his words will become to us. So though it may not be so clear to us now, we shouldn't be discouraged. We just have to go on carefully studying what Bhagavan taught us. That means particularly his own original writings or good translations of them. And trying to understand what he is saying, trying to make sense of what he's saying. And most importantly of all, trying to put it into practice. So these are early days. 
not only for you, for most of us, we're still in the early stages, but the more we go into this, the more clarity we will get, the clearer it will all become. So do, do not be disheartened because it's not so clear now. If you follow this path, slowly, slowly, you'll be, it will become clearer and clearer and clearer to you. It'll become blindingly obvious that what Bhagavan is saying is the ultimate truth. Okay. Thank you very much. I will keep trying. Okay, right. Thank right. you. Thanks. The next question is, um, I would like to make sure I understand if we cling to our true self and stay, and stay no matter what and hold on to it firmly, then we will become pure awareness and the world will cease to exist for us. And any movement of the mind or body that was mistakenly taken as ourselves, we will be able to see acting out, but not take it as ourselves. We don't become pure awareness. We remain as, even now we are, pure awareness is what we actually are. But because we are looking outwards, we seem to be this ego that is aware of itself as I am this body. The more we look within, the more we will subside and eventually dissolve completely in this pure awareness. When we, then we, will rem, we won't become pure, pure awareness, we will remain as pure awareness. We'll be what we always actually are. Then there will be no body or mind or world or anything. There'll be just pure awareness. Body and mind and world appear only in the view of ourself as ego. So when we turn our attention within and lose ourselves in the uh, light of pure awareness, which is what we always actually are, that light of pure awareness alone will remain. Because that alone is what actually exists. That alone is what is real. That is eternal and immutable. That is what, that is, that is what we actually are. That is what we are seeking to 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 know and thereby to lose ourselves in that. The next question is, and there are actually two questions, one after the other by the same person. During this auspicious period of Navratri Durga Puja, could Michael say something about what Bhagwan had said, if if anything, about Chandi or or Devi Mahatmyam or Devika or Devika Lotaram? And the second question is, could we infer what Bhagwan says that mind as Atishaya Shakti, he means the ego. Therefore, as you are explaining, ego is not a jada. This is very different from what is said in Tattva Bodha, where ego is part of Antakarana, which is a jada. Uh, would you therefore say ego is not a jada, is the crux of Bhagwan's teachings. Um, e Bhagwan also said ego is, that, that is, Bhagwan also spoke about antakarana. The antakarana is manas, buddhi, chittam, and ahankaram. That is mind, intellect, uh, will, and ego. As Bhagavan said, this antakarana is one. They, the, these are different functions of the same antakarana. So the manas or manamaya kosha is the 
grosser, the grosser functions of the mind, that is um, uh, perception, memory, thinking, feeling, emotion, and so on. These, they, these all are manas. These functions are manas. Subtler than manas is the intellect, that is the discerning, discriminating, judging, reasoning aspect of the mind. Um, that, sorry, that, that is the, the, the buddhi, the intellect, or the, the, the vijnanamaya kosha. Subtler than, the vijnana, subtler than this intellect is the will. The will consists of vasanas, which are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, and fears, hopes, and so on. Um, uh, uh, so they, this this will is what is called the chittam or the uh, uh, anandamaya kosha. But ahankaram is not any of the is, is not a kosha. It is this. It is the the. It is the, the function of ahankara is abhimanam. Abhimanam means it takes all these other three to be itself. When the, that is perceiving is the function of the mind, but the ego is aware of itself as I am perceiving, I am mem remembering, I am thinking, I am feeling, I am um, I, I am uh, having this emotion or that emotion. So ego appropriates for itself the functions of the mind. Likewise with the intellect. Intellect is I am reasoning, I'm judging, I'm discerning, I'm discriminating, and so on. <clears throat> so it appropriates the functions of, of uh, intellect. Likewise, it, um, it appropriates the functions of the will. I like this, I dislike that. So this is the function of ego. So whereas the other three um, functions of the antakarana are koshas, the, the, namely the manamaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha, and anandamaya kosha, ego is not a kosha. It's what takes all five koshas to be I. Ego is neither chit nor jada. It is a confused mixture of the two as Bhagavan makes clear in verse 24 of Uludunapadu. Um, of he says, Jada Udul Nane Nadu, but the insentient body, the Jada body, does not say I. What he means by that is, it is not aware of itself as I. And what he means by body there, Udul, is all the five sheaths. Because earlier in verse 5, he said, Udul Panchakosa Uru, the body is a form of five sheaths. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. So when Bhagavan talks about body, he's not talking just about the physical body. He's talking about all the five sheaths. All the five sheaths are jada. Uh, so because they're jada, they're not aware of themselves as I. Satchit udiyadu. Satchit does not rise. But in between these two, something rises as the something one thing i rises as the extent of a body since it since it um since it is aware of its since it's an i it, that means it's aware of itself as i it is not the body because the body is not aware of itself as i since it rises it is not such it but it borrows the properties of both it borrows its existence and its awareness from such it 
Satchit means the pure existence awareness, what we actually are, that is Satchit. So it borrows its existence and its awareness from Satchit. And it borrows its form from the body, as I am this body. That's why Bhagavan says it rises as the extent of a body. And when he says it rises in between, what he mean, implies by in between, firstly, ego is the only link between Satchit and every and the body and consequently everything else. That's one sense. Another sense is ego is neither this nor that. It's neither the body nor Satchit, but it borrows properties of both. So supposing you read some story in the newspaper and you're doubtful, is this story true or false? You may ask a friend, is this story true or false? Your friend may say, it's neither true nor false, it's somewhere in between. What do they mean by somewhere in between? It's got elements of truth and elements of falsehood. That is, uh, some parts of the, the story based to some extent on the truth, but much of it is, 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 is fabricated. It's not, it's not true. So it's a mixture of truth and falsehood. Just like that, ego is a mixture of truth and falsehood. The truth is the chit element. The falsehood is the jada element. So that's why ego is called chit jada granti. So this is Bhagavan, when Bhagavan says all this, this is perfectly consistent with what is said in the um in the uh, in, in classical Advaita. There are so many texts that talk about ego being chitchadagranti, but Bhagavan is clarifying it. He makes it so much clear, he makes it simpler and clearer. So Bhagavan is not is not uh Bhagavan never goes again for basic principles of Advaita. Many of the Unnecessary teachings of Advaita Bhagavan discards, but the core teach, the core message of Advaita is is um, is expressed perfectly and clearly in Bhagavan's teachings. In fact, we can say Bhagavan's teachings are Advaita Vedanta in their very purest, subtlest, clearest, uh, simplest, most radical and most practical form. So what Bhagavan is saying is perfectly consistent with what is said in uh, <clears throat> it's a long I, that yeah, I haven't read I've read bits and pieces of Tapa Bodh. I, I can't remember it's a long time since I I I read such uh, things, so I can't remember exactly what's said in them, but um Bhagavan's teaching is the essence of all such texts. Uh, there was a bit more to the question, but I'm not answering. I can't remember what the rest of the question was. Or oh, there were two parts of a question. Shalini, was there? Have I any part of it I've not answered? Um, so the entire question is: uh, Could we infer a what Bhagwan says mind as atishaya shakti, uh, that he means the ego? Therefore, as you are explaining, ego is not a jada. This is very different from what is said in Tattva Bodha where ego is part of antakarna, which is a jada. Would you therefore say ego and not jada is the crux of Bhagwan's teachings? Okay. As I say, ego is neither chit nor jada. It is a confused, a, a conflation of the two. So the only element of the antakarna that has awareness is ego. The mind, the mind in the sense of the, the, the mind in the sense of uh, uh, the grosser functions of the mind, the uh, gross functions of the antikarana, that is not aware. The intellect is not aware. The will is not aware. What is aware of all these things is ego. 
I, I am, as I said, I am perceiving, I am remembering, I am thinking, I am feeling, I am discerning, I am discriminating, I'm judging, I'm uh, reasoning, I like this, I like that. So ego is the only element of uh, um, of uh, antakarana that is endowed with awareness. But it's not pure awareness because it's mixed and conflated with the jada element. So it is an impure awareness. And so ego, though ego is aware, it's the real, real awareness is only pure awareness, but is not aware of anything other than itself. Ego always knows itself as I am this body, which is not what it actually is. And it's aware of the existence of other things which do not actually exist. So it is not real awareness. But, but though it is not real awareness, it is it is a, it's what is called chidabhasa. Chidabhasa is often translated as a reflection of awareness. But the basic meaning of abhasa is a, is a, a likeness, a semblance. So, so the reflection is a derived meaning. If you look in a mirror and see your face, the face you see in a mirror is, is not, is in other words a reflection it is not your face it is a likeness of your face a semblance of your face so in that sense of reflection is a likeness um but the basic meaning of chidabhasa it's a likeness of awareness it's a semblance of awareness that means it's not it's not awareness as it actually is but awareness as it seems to be because the real awareness is not aware of anything other than itself, because nothing other than itself actually exists. Since ego is aware of the appearance of all these other things, which do not actually exist, it is not real awareness. So it's awareness, but not real awareness. It's, it's, it's not pure awareness, it's an impure awareness. It's an adjunct conflated awareness. So I'm sure this is also explained in one way or other in Tattva Bodha and other such texts, because this is the this is the basic teaching of Advaita. If anyone says ego is wholly jada, then who is aware of all this? It's obviously it's only it's only as ego, the they have buddhi, this awareness, I am this body, but we're aware of all other things. So we need to read, if we read Bhagavan's teachings and understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, then only we'll be able to understand these other texts very clearly and very simply. If we haven't understood Bhagavan's teachings, we're liable to misread these other texts and come to wrong conclusions. As many, many classical Advaitins, who, those who give lectures, they often may come to wrong conclusions because they, they haven't, they, they lack the practical experience and they haven't understood the, what they're reading from the, from the clear and simple perspective of Bhagavan's teachings. Bhagavan's teachings throw so much light on the texts of classical Advaita. I'll just follow up with the next question. Um, 
Next one, are there actually two questions together? Um, the first one is, I'm very confused about the role of God. I do understand Ishwar as mind's manifestation of eternal consciousness, but still that God as something all-powerful keeps me safe and gives me strength to navigate life. And accepting non-duality puts hesitation in my mind that if God is only a stage uh, um, who is on the way, by accepting, by accepting non-duality, I will lose God's strength. Uh, Michael, do you want me to read the next question or first I answer this? I think best I deal with this question first. Um, to understand, <clears throat> from the perspective of Bhagavan's teaching, which is also the perspective of, uh, of um, Advaita, we need, that is what, what Advaita and Bhagavan teach about God is very deep and very subtle. The basic truth to understand about God is what Bhagavan expresses in verse 20, uh, 24 and 25 of Upadeshundiya. In verse 24, he says, Irakum ekeal isa jivagal oruporle ava undipara upadi undipara. What that means is, by existing nature, God and soul are one substance. This is the basic teaching of Advaita, Jiva Brahmaikya, that is oneness of, of, uh, of, of Jiva and Brahman. Uh, Brahman here, we can take, uh, God here means Brahman. Um, so, God is, is what we actually are. That's why Bhagavan says, by existing nature. That means in our, in our nature as pure existence, we and God are one. That is the, 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 the one substance he talks about, Oruporal in Sanskrit. Poral is a Tamil equivalent of the Sanskrit word Vastu. That means the one substance. That one substance is Satchit. So God, as Satchit, we and God are one, is the implication there. So why do we seem to be different from God? As Bhagavan says, upadi unavei verundipara. The adjunct awareness alone is different. What does he mean by the adjunct awareness? That is, such it is what shines as I am. So I am is God. But now we're aware of ourselves as not just as I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person, I am Michael or I am whoever. That is that is the, the what Bhagavan refers to there as adjunct awareness. That is it, the adjunct conflated awareness. I am this person. I, I am this body. So it is the adjuncts, but seemingly separated from God. So long as we identify ourselves as a set of adjuncts, so long as I'm aware of myself as I am Michael, obviously Michael isn't God. What is God is only the I am, the pure I am. I am devoid of adjunct. So in the next verse, verse 25, Bhagavan says, knowing oneself without adjuncts is knowing God, because God always shines as oneself. So um, if we understand this basic truth, that God is what we actually are, then all the other uh, teachings about God fall into place. In another place in Nana, in Nana, Bhagavan says in the seventh paragraph, what actually exists is Atmasarupa. That Atmasarupa 
that means the real nature of ourself, ourself as we actually are. That is what Bhagavan referred to in verse 24 of Rupadesh Undia as the one substance that is both God and the soul. <clears throat> so he says, um, uh, what actually exists is only Atmasarupa. Jagajiveshwara, uh, uh, that is world, uh, uh, soul, and God, are appearances in it like uh, silver in a mother of pearl. All three appear together and disappear together. So why does he say God appears along with ego when God is our own real nature? That is, we, 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 that's what, this is where we need to have a subtle understanding. We need to understand when we rise as ego, we seemingly separate ourselves from God. Because instead of being aware of ourselves as, as such it, we are now aware of ourselves as this little body. So God, see, since we separated ourselves from God, in our view, God seems to be separate, something separate from us. So that separate God comes into existence only when we rise as ego. But the reality of that separate God is the reality of ourself, namely Satchit. So we need to understand from the context when Bhagavan talks about God, in what sense he's talking about God. So Bhagavan said many things about God. For example, he says in the 15th paragraph of Nana, but, um, but all the five divine functions, that is creation, sustenance, uh, destruction, um, terodana, that's veiling, and anugraha, grace, all these five divine functions happen by the mere, by the special nature, by the mere special nature of the presence of God. The presence of God means the being of God. That means God doesn't actually do anything, but everything happens as it's meant to happen simply by his, the special nature of his presence, because his presence is his being. And his being is pure love. So everything is happening as it's meant to happen. Elsewhere in Nana, he says in the uh, 13th paragraph, well, 12th paragraph, he says, Kadavalam Guruvum Unmail Verala. God and Guru are in truth not different. So Guru is none other than God, and God is none other than Guru. And elsewhere, Bhagavan used to say, uh, uh, God, Guru, and uh, and uh, soul and self and self. Sorry, God, Guru, and Atman are 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 all one and the same. That is, God and Guru are nothing but our own real nature. Atman there means ourself as we actually are. Atma Swarupa, uh, I am. So that which shines within us as I am, that is God. That is Guru. In the thirteenth paragraph, he talks about. Uh, giving ourselves wholly to God. How can we give ourselves wholly to God? Only by being so keenly self-attentive, but we give no room to the rising of any other thought. That alone is giving ourselves to God. And then he says, however much burden we place on God, he will bear all of it. And then he goes on to say, when one Parameshwara Shakti, Parameshwara Shakti, Parama means supreme, Ishwara means God or ruler, ruling. Uh, Shakti means power. So the one supreme ruling power or power of God, when that one power is driving all karyas, karyas in this context means everything that's meant to happen, everything that ought to happen, everything we're meant to do, everything we ought to do, he is driving it all. When he's driving all karyas, 
why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? So Bhagavan gives us a very clear assurance there, however much burden we place on God, he will bear all of it. So we can, we, we can certainly trust God because God is our own reality. God is what we actually are. Though God may seem to us to be something other than ourselves, because we've limited ourselves as this body, he is always what we actually are. He seems to be something other than ourselves only when we rise as ego. That is why Bhagavan says, uh, uh, world, soul, and God, arise simultaneously and subside simultaneously. That There he's talking about God as he appears in the view of ego, rather than God as he actually is. What God actually is, is I am. That which is shining in our heart as I am, that is God. That is the Parameshwara Shakti. That is Guru. So I hope this helps to clarify that. So we need to read... We, we shouldn't read Bhagavan's words superficially. We need to read them very carefully and consider them very carefully, pay close attention to what Bhagavan is saying, then it will all make sense to us. But we shouldn't just take things out of context and try and understand things out of context. Every statement of Bhagavan, we need to understand within the context of his teachings as a whole. There, I'm talking about the core teachings of Bhagavan, not, not the answers he gave to other people's questions. Often they're dilutions because he has to give appropriate answers to the people who ask the question. But I'm talking about his core teachings as expressed in his own writings in Arunachastutipanchikam, Uludunapadu, Padeshundia, Nana, Amavide, and such works. These are the core teachings of Bhagavan. Um, there was a question, uh, Michael, um, sort of which had been in two parts, and the first part sort of forgot to answer that. And this is, uh, during this auspicious period of Navratri in Durga Puja, could Michael say something about what Bhagwan had said, if anything, about Chandi or Devi Mahatmyam or Devika, or Devika Lokkuttaram? Um, Bhagwan sometimes used to, and that is Arunachala, is Adhanarishwara. The means the form of Shiva, but is half male, half female. That form of, of Shiva is to represent the oneness of Shiva and Shakti. So Arunachala is the embodiment of that oneness of Shiva and Shakti. And there's, there's the, the story of Deepam is connected with the story. It, it, it's, it's, it, the, the story behind Deepam is the story of Devi's uh, tapas when she came to Tiruvannamalai. So Bhagavan often used to tell this story. That is once in Mount Kailash, I think it was just after um, Subramania was born, um, Devi was in a playful mood. So in a playful mood, she came behind Lord Shiva and she covered his three eyes. She did so only for a few moments, but he became very angry and he scolded her. What a foolish girl you are. You are the mother of the entire universe. By covering my eyes, my eyes, my three eyes of a sun, moon, and fire, 
in other words, the source of light in the universe. So without these three, the, the, uh, this universe cannot exist. So by covering my three eyes, you brought about an untimely pralaya, dissolution of the whole world. Um, and what is for you just a few few moments for the, for the people and the gods and the creatures on earth, it is a, it's a long ages. Uh, so when he scolded her like that, she became repentant. So leaving him and her newborn child, she came to earth to do tapas. And she came to, uh, I think when he asked where she should go to do tapas, he said, go to Arunachal or something. I can't remember details. Anyway, she came to Tiruvannamalai and she was doing tapas here. And during the, her stay in Tiruvannamalai, other stories also get connected in. Um, during her stay, while she was doing tapas in Tiruvannamalai, Mahishasura, um, which is the story behind the Navaratri festival, if I remember correctly, Mahishasura was giving trouble to all the rishis and good people and the devas and others. So they all came to Devi to pray to her to kill Mahishasura. Um, so uh, she, she accordingly, she killed Mahishasura, and on the, if you do Giri Pradakshana around Arunachala, walk around Arunachala, when you come into the town, it's probably quite far into the town now, um, you come on the right-hand side is um, the Durga Temple. The Durga Temple is at the foot of Pavla Kundru, where Bhagavan was staying for a while. Um, which is a, an eastern spur of Arunachala. So in that Devi temple, there's a, there's a tank called Kajya Tirtam. Uh, Kajya means the sword, because that tank is said to have been cut by, De by Devi with this sword with which he killed Mahishasura. Um, so there are lots of stories like this that are connected with uh, Tadamanamalai. And so Bhagavan used to tell these stories in the connection with, with Tiruvannamalai. And he also, but the main story of her doing tapas in Tiruvannamalai, finally when her tapas was over, with great love in her heart, she decided to do, uh, to walk around Arunachala. So she proceeded to do Giri Pradakshana. And as she completed the Giri Pradakshana, Lord Shiva appeared on the top of the hill as a, as a light. This is the, the original Deepam. That's what the Deepam festival is to celebrate, the, the ending of Devi's tapas. And she then merged in him. Bhagavan alludes to this. So that's why Shiva and Shakti are one. That's why Arunachi is, is Adhanarishwara, that oneness of Shiva and Shakti. Bhagavan also alludes to this in the first verse of Arunachi and Navamani Malai. Uh, there's a, a nice story behind this. There was a Dikshita, that is a, a priest from the Chidambaram temple. He was a very learned man. Um, he used to visit Tiruvannamalai, and he came, this is in the very early days when Bhagavan was living on the hill. He came to know about Bhagavan, he started to uh, visit Bhagavan, and he understood Bhagavan is a very great, uh, very great uh, soul. So, because he was so much devoted to Chidambaram, he um, he got. He had a desire in his heart to take Bhagavan to Chidambaram. So he used whenever he came to Bhagavan, he used to talk about the greatness of Chidambaram, and Bhagavan would listen patiently. 
But though he often talked about the greatness of Chidambaram, he never, Bhagavan never showed any signs of interest to go to Chidambaram. So finally he said to Bhagavan, Chidambaram is even greater than Tiruvannamalai, because among the Panchapuda Lingas, that the Lingas representing the five elements, Aranachali is the, uh, is the uh, Agni Linga, the Linga of fire, whereas Chidambaram is the Akasa Linga, the Linga of, of, of space. And space is the original element from which all the other elements come out. Therefore, Chidambaram is greater than Tiruvannamalai. He, he said that, and he then went away. When he came back, Bhagavan handed him a piece of paper on which he had written this first verse of Arunachala um, uh, Navamani Malai. In that verse, Bhagavan says, Achilanei ayinum achavei danil achileyam ammei ediradum achila uru vilakchakti odungida ongum arunachalam endrari. The meaning of that is put in a very terse way, but that, that dictionary was able to understand what Bhagavan is saying here. But the basic meaning is, in that sabha, in that sabha, that means the, the, the hall of Chidambaram, though, though his nature is motionlessness, in that hall of Chidambaram, he dances in front of... Um, uh, the mother, who is actually the consort of Achillam. Achillam means the male form of... Achillam means what is motionless. Achillam means he who is motionless. Achillay is the consort of he who is motionless. So in that court of Chidambaram, he dances in front of that of the mother, who is actually. Um, so the implication is that though his real nature is Achalam, Lord Shiva is motionlessness, he's pure being, there he is dancing. There's a story why he's dancing there, because she had um, she had killed some demon, I've forgotten the name of the demon, and she was then dancing a, a frenzied dance, and that her dance was putting the whole universe in danger. Uh, so Lord Shiva had to come and in the form of Nataraja and dance in front of her. So it was basically a dancing competition between the two of them. And he finally did some move that she wasn't able to move, do. And so he won the dance. And so she um, then she calmed down. But that's the story of Chidambaram. But anyway, what Bhagavan says is, though he's motionless by nature, in that court in Chidambaram, he is dancing in front of the, the mother, who is actually. Um, but then he says, "Achala uruvil achakti odungida ongum arunachalam injury." That is what, what he implies by that is achala. Let's say achala ayinum achavi danil achalyam amidi. Ediradum achala uruvilachakti odungila. When that when that shakti subsides in his motionless form, that is, it's here in the, though the dance took place in Chidambaram, when he won the dance, then it was here in Tiruvannamalai, but she subsided in his motionless form. So, Ongum Arunachamendri, Ongum means to, to surge. So, the implication is Arunachya shine supreme. 
because this is the place where she merged in him. So there in Chidambaram, he's dancing to bring her, dan her frenzied dance to a standstill. Then here in Tirvanamala, she merges in him. So when Bhagavan gave that verse to that pundit, to that uh, dikshita, he understood the meaning. So he did namaskaram to Bhagavan, he did namaskaram to Arunachala, and he returned to Chidambaram. And whenever he came after that, he never meant, he never tried to persuade Bhagavan to come to Tiruvannamalai. So from a, that is, we can say the end of David's spiritual journey, the end of Shakti's spiritual journey was in Tiruvannamalai. Shakti represents Maya. Maya eventually has to merge back into Brahman. That merging of Maya into Brahman, that is the merge, Maya is nothing but ego. So the merging of ego into Brahman is the merging of, Shak of Shakti into Shiva. That is uh, Arunachala. So Arunachala is the final end of all spiritual journeys. It's the end of David's spiritual journey. It's the end of the spiritual journey of all of us. So Bhagavan, yes, Bhagavan did talk about uh, uh, Devi in in these I mean all these are stories that Bhagavan told. I hope that adequately answers that question. Uh, Michael, we have sort of about three four questions. I'm not, um, and we are sort of uh, running okay. close. Okay, okay. Well, I'll try. Uh, I'll try to be quick. <laughs> um, yes, because it might be a bit tiring for you to continue. No, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'll continue as long as okay. We'll try to finish. Would people uh, who had asked a few questions, I think, um, whose questions haven't been answered, would they like to just ask it themselves? There were about three questions, three or four questions. Can I go, uh, Shalom? Yeah? yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Hi. Hi, Michael. Thanks for Hi. uh today. Just one question I had was that, you know, um, I've been recently started to practice in this, you know, self-inquiry and remaining in the self. And it was, I mean, I could experience the bliss, obviously, which comes with that. But the, uh, at the same time, I also started feeling a bit like a, this um, connectedness. So, I mean, I was able to, you know, remain in bliss, but I was not becoming interested in like the ups and downs. I was participating, and uh, but I was not seeming to disinterested or like almost impersonal about stuff. And that kind of became a scary thing, thinking like, um, would if it continued like that, the, I will become disconnected to people around me, and then later it might become like the Varagya topic you were saying, almost like the sin of omission that I might start. They're not bothered to take care of my. Maybe I'm taking things wrong, but that's kind of a silly thing which I'm maybe I'm not doing something correctly there. But there was bliss, but disconnectedness or disin disinterestedness, if I should lack of a better word. <clears throat> that is. To the extent to which we go within and hold on to our own being, we thereby separate ourselves from the person we seem to be. We don't separate ourselves entirely, of course, until ego is annihilated. But there is a process of slowly um, weakening the bonds. So we do become detached, first and foremost, not from others, we become detached from the person we take ourselves to be. That doesn't mean if 
that is what is actually happening. We are separating ourselves from the person we seem to be. To the extent to which we separate ourselves from this person we seem to be, this is of course happening at a very subtle level, so it's very hard to put it into words, but to the extent to which we become detached from this person we seem to be, the distinction between oneself and others begins to dissolve. So they, they, that is, though there is still a distinction of I and you and he and she and it and everything, these distinctions are still there, but they're, they're less solid than they were before. The boundaries are less, are, are less, um, are less strong than they were before. So we, but we begin to see ourselves more and more in others. So if anyone is truly following this path, it is natural to become more loving, kind, and compassionate. Because we, 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 to the extent to which we detach ourselves from this person, we are also dissolving the distinction between one person and another. So we, we, so to speak, see ourselves in others. Not, not exactly, but we, 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 if others are suffering, it pains us to see others suffering. This is why a good person, a person with a pure mind, will always be very kind, gentle, compassionate, and everything. So though on the one hand we are detaching ourselves more from this person and thereby weakening our bonds, at the same time we will be more loving and caring and compassionate. So many of us, uh, according to our prarabdha, we have family. We may have wife or husband, children, and so on. Um, by following this path, though we are detaching ourselves from the person we seem to be, by detaching ourselves from this person, we actually become more loving and caring. So we'll actually be a better husband or a better wife, a better children, better husband to our wife, wife to our husband, depending on which gender we are, better ch child to our parent, better parent to our children. To the extent to which we are detached, we'll be better, we, 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 will, we will play all these roles better by detaching our, to the extent to which we're detaching ourselves. Is what I'm saying, is it clear to you or... I mean, it's very difficult to put it adequately into words because it's something very subtle. I'm just trying to, to conceptualize and put it into words, but it's, the, the words are always inadequate. But do you get a hint of what I'm trying to say? Does it make any sense to you? No, no, it is. It is. Thanks, Michael. It is. I think it's just... Yes. The scariness of the path initially. Naturally, because we, we have so much attachment, we're not ready to let go. The other aspect that I wanted to touch upon in this connection with what you've asked is, we need not worry about not playing our part in this world, because as Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph of Nana that I referred to earlier, when one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? Bhagavan wants us to surrender ourselves to that higher power. That higher power is driving all karyas. So whatever we're meant to do, 
whatever we ought to do, it will make us, it will make our mind, speech, and body do whatever is necessary. Because ultimately, the life is going on according to prarabdha. If it is our prarabdha to be, to be married, to have children, and so on, the prarabdha will also drive us to do whatever is necessary to uh, earn a livelihood, to take care of our, uh, our husband or wife, our children, our elderly parents, and so on and so forth. All these things will happen automatically to the extent to which we surrender ourselves. So by going within, we are thereby surrendering our mind, speech, and body to God. To Bhagavan, that means. So he will he will anyway make them do whatever they're meant to do. But to the extent to which we we surrender the mind, speech, and body to him, to that extent we are not interfering. So everything will go on perfectly as it would anyway go on. So we need not fear, fear but we are not going to take care of our wife and our children or fulfill our obligations to our elderly parents or anything like that. We need not have these fears. It will all happen according to Prarabdha, whether we identify ourselves with this or not. So there's nothing to fear on this path. The more we go deeper within, the more everything will, the more we will recognize that whatever is happening in life, consider your life up to this point. You started off your life as a small child. You grew up, you got educated. Um, I don't know whether you were born in the UK or whether you were born in India and came to the UK or whatever, but somehow your life has evolved. Now you're in a certain position. You've got a, you may have a family, may or may not have a family. You may have a certain job and everything. How all these things have happened? If we, if we got a very strong identification, I worked hard, I studied hard, I did this, I attended this interview, I got this job, I'm working hard, I'm achieving it all by myself. But if we're going on this path, we will begin to recognize more and more, all these things are just happening automatically. Things are happening not because of us, but in spite of us. Is that a, in any way yeah, a reassurance? Yeah, very helpful. Thanks, man. Okay. Actually, I think that was very, very good, especially uh, very helpful, uh, especially this idea about how we become more compassionate by delving deeper, uh, by self-investigation, yeah. because that's something that people often ask about, that, you know, we become more detached and then, you know, we're going to become indifferent to others. And I think, yeah. sort of, you know, I mean, there is that sort of misconception. We become now, more indifferent um, to the person we take ourselves to be, but more concerned, more compassionate to others. Is there anybody who would like to ask a question? Uh, yeah. Yes, I would like could... to ask. I would like to ask. Yeah, and uh, bearing in mind that uh, it is getting a bit late uh, for Michael, so... We'd like yes. to keep it. Yes. So to, to wrap up fairly soon, yeah. Yes. So, sir, now uh, as we know, one supreme power inherent in our Atma Sarupa is called Chit Shakti. However, when we rise as ego, ego borrows its powers, powers from this one ultimate power and uses this one power as its Ichha Shakti, Kriya Shakti, and Jnana Shakti. Is this correct? So does Ichha Shakti rise before Kriya Shakti and Jnana Shakti? Does what rises first is Ichha Shakti and we are swayed, and when we are swayed by Ichha Shakti, 
we come to kriya shakti and when we are swayed by our kriya shakti we come to jnana shakti is it correct sir thank you um <clears throat> when we that is the one reality atma swarupa is what is called chit shakti that is shiva and shakti are not two different things it's not that but shakti is a part of shiva shiva is shakti shakti is shiva uh, bhagavan and his power are not two separate things so bhagavan the power of his grace is what is also called chit shakti the power of awareness when we rise as ego whatever power this ego has it is drawing from that chit shakti which is our own source our own reality so that shakti when functioning through the mind functions in the form of um jnana shakti the power of knowing uh icha shakti the power of liking kriya shakti the power of doing we can say the um but the kriya shakti is a reflection of the sat element of satchidananda but that is the being becomes doing so that is the kriya shakti the jnana shakti is a there is a, a reflection of the chit element and the ananda and the icha shakti is a reflection of the ananda aspect um so all these things are related but ultimately they're all one and the same i mean sat is chit chit is chit is sat and both are ananda so but when it it's like when a light goes through a prism it gets diffracted and becomes uh, into different colors it becomes a, like a rainbow like thing you get when your light is diffracted through a prism likewise when that one power is diffracted from through the mind it seemingly becomes three powers the power of knowing the power of of uh, of liking and the power of doing but ultimately these are all one we can't say which of these come first they all arise simultaneously when we rise as ego but it's so because because why i say so sir when we rise our innermost desires come first so that is icha shakti then comes our power of knowing and power of doing so so can we say that the icha shakti is the base of the other powers it not really because the very rising of our, of ego is the first doing and as soon as ego rises it knows it knows i am this body so that's a, and that consequently knows other things and consequently it has liking so they all they they are they are different different aspects of the same one power and they all appear simultaneously with ego got it sir got it because they now what you what you are saying is all three are equally connected to chit shakti all three all three are chit shakti diffracted through ego so ego is the as bhagavan says ego rises in between the sat chit and the body so ego is ego is always the mediator so when the ego rises the one chit shakti appears as the three when ego subsides all merges everything merges back into the one chit shakti which is atma swarupa so so when we are turning back within we are using these three parts to turn back within yes yes we we, we there must be the love love is most important 
Mm. And we are loving what? To know ourselves and thereby to be ourselves. So being what we actually are is for Kriya Shakti. We're not doing, we're being. Because what is what actually is, is only being. It's only in the view of ego that being becomes doing. We see our own being as all these do doings. So be the, the, the self-investigation, the each as, aspect is the love with which we do the self-investigation. The, the, the jnana aspect is the knowing ourselves, attending to ourselves. And the, um, the, uh, the kriya aspect is being ourselves. Got it, sir. But, but when we are turning within, Ichha Shakti predominates, I believe, when you're turning within. All, aren't you attending to yourself? They're all there. To the extent to which you turn your attention within, you, you can only turn your attention within if you have a love to do so. Yes. To the extent to which you have love to turn within, you will turn within. You're turning within me. That, that is your, <clears throat> the love is the Ichha. The, the satvasana, that is the love, that each aspect. Your turning of your attention back towards yourself, that is the chit aspect, because attention is, is a focusing of our awareness. And um, but to the extent to which we turn within, all doing ceases and being alone remains. So we cannot separate them. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. But, Love is fundamental in this yeah, path, certainly. We, we wouldn't turn within if we didn't have the love. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And when, when we turn within, but the Ichha Shakti predominates. We can't say that. I mean, Ichha Shakti is essential. The love to turn within is essential. Yeah. But they, they, the three are inseparable. They seem separated when we look outwards. But to the extent to which we look inwards, they merge and become one. Got it, got it, sir. Yeah. Thank you. But we don't have to analyze these things too much. What's important is that we turn within. Thank you, sir. Right. Thank you. Um, should we close the meeting now, Michael? If, are yeah, there any more questions? Or? Yeah, I have a question. Thank you. Someone says Sorry. they have a question. Uh, my voice is little. <laughs> Hi, Sorry, can you turn up your volume? It's very faint. Let me try. Okay. Or maybe I should turn up my volume and try Can and you hear, hear me you. Now? I now I hear you. Yes. Okay. Um, so what I'm wondering is if if Bhagavan had no ego and therefore no world existed for him, then why leave teachings to whom? <laughs> when we talk about Bhagavan, we are talking about a certain person. We we see Bhagavan as a person like us. That that is the, the the person Ramana Maharshi seemed to be just like us. He had a body, he had a mind. He gave us teachings and everything. But Bhagavan said, the mind and body of the jnani exists only in the view of the agnani. Put it another way: this our whole life is just a dream. In this dream of ours, Bhagavan has appeared and given us these teachings. Though Bhagavan is a part of our dream, that is, Bhagavan as a person is part of our dream, what is shining through that person 
That is the real Bhagavan. The light which the light of uh, and love that shines through that person, that is the real Bhagavan. So um we 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 love Bhagavan as a person because through that person, through that body of mind, the the light and the light of pure awareness and the love, but is our own real nature were shining. So in, in this dream of ours, Bhagavan appeared as a person in order to tell us the term within. So how did he appear when his nature is that pure being? Because pure being is also pure love. So in Bhagavan's view, we are nothing other than himself. Because he 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 knows he alone is and sees no other, so he he doesn't see us as the as the person we take ourselves to be. He sees us as we actually are. He sees us as himself. So he loves us as himself. So as he says in the fifteenth paragraph of Nana, by the special nature of his mere presence, all these things happen. This, why? What is the special nature of his pure presence? The special nature of his uh, of his uh, of his presence is pure love, because his being is itself love. Ambe shivam, love alone is shiva. Love is God. So Bhagavan is love itself. So because he is love itself, all that that is the the person we saw as Bhagavan. Is the, is the manifestation of that love that is our own real nature. Does that make any sense or does it sound like gibberish? Um, it's, I'm still trying to understand. We, we, if you want to understand, you have to lose yourself in that. We cannot understand. Bhagavan is infinite love. How can the finite mind understand infinite love? It cannot. So we, 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 this will become clear to us to the extent to which we go within. But we won't understand it fully until we, we are swallowed by that light. Okay. There's a, it, at the end of, um, what I saying, uh, which verse is it? Verse, um, uh, At the end of verse 21 of Uludunapadu, um, Bhagavan, I'll read the whole verse. <clears throat> if one asks, what is the truth of many texts that say oneself seeing oneself and seeing God? Then Bhagavan gives the answer. Since oneself is one, how is oneself to see oneself? If it is not possible, how to see God? Then he gives the answer. Unadal Khan, that means becoming food is seeing. So we can, we can see what we actually are, and we can see God, which are one and the same. I mean, God is what we actually are, and we can see him only by becoming food to him. So only when we are swallowed by him entirely can we be truly said to have seen God. So all this will become clear to us only when we are swallowed by him. Until then, we can our understanding will inevitably be limited. We, we, as we go deeper in this path, we things will become clearer and clearer to us. But it will become perfectly clear only when we ourselves are swallowed by that clarity. Okay. 
So being, you, <clears throat> becoming food is seeing means we'll see all this, all the truth of all that Bhagavan says will become clear to us only when we are swallowed by him. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think um, I think for me, it's this uh, fear that shows up where if you lose yourself, right? I'm going to say it in that way, right? Using the ego, then <clears throat> you lose the whole world, right? You lose everything. Yes, you lose every. If you lose yourself, you gain. Then only you gain yourself. You because what we lose is what we are not, and what we gain is what we actually are. The self we are fearing to lose now is this ego, which is not what we actually are. So we, <clears throat> Bhagavan used to say, people fear to surrender themselves. This is like a person who is offered all the wealth in the world, but asked to surrender um, a, a, a quarter paisa, a tiny little coin. That is this, this self and this world, but we are asked to surrender, are very, very trivial in comparison to the huge wealth that we will gain if we surrender these. That is what we actually are, is infinitely greater than this little self we now take ourselves to be, and this world that we, to which we are so attached. Because it is the underlying reality of all these things. So, we are not actually losing anything we because n nothing can be lost because what is always is as it is and we are that because it almost sounds like when when i'm hearing this and when i'm and i had asked a previous question about you know do you see yourself as as acting in the world and it sounds like you see nothing so you don't see like, nothing you see the only thing which is everything but i mean um nothing like your family or like just the world as it is this is the confusion. you see the reality of all these things okay so you still see them but you see them so further. so long as you so long as you, if you see a, a snake sorry if you see a rope but instead of seeing it as a rope you see it as a snake if you're told no it's not a snake it's only a, a rope Look at it carefully and you'll see. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to look at it carefully. I'll lose the snake if I look at it carefully. No, if you look at it carefully, you'll see what the snake actually is. So if you look at yourself carefully enough, you will see what you actually are. And what you actually are is what all your friends and your family and the whole world actually is. It's only that. So we don't actually lose anything. We... If we continue clinging to this body as I, we're going to lose all our relatives, we're going to lose all our friends, we're going to lose this body itself one day. That all are going to pass away, all these that are fleeting appearances. But what is the underlying reality of all these things? <coughs> that is what we gain, stand to gain if we are willing to surrender all these things. So, so what I'm hearing is, um, say I surrender fully. Yes. Now, right? And um, my family, my the animals I see, whatever, whatever's around me, I still see them, but I see them for what they are. You see them as they actually are, yes. Okay. 
Thank you. Thank you. That means you you don't see them as now we see as many, but we will see as one. Now we see as ever changing, we'll see as ever unchanging. Now we see as 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 um, fleeting, temporary, all these uh, animals and relatives and our body and everything, all these we know are temporary, but we'll see them as they actually are, which is eternal. So what we will then experience is the reality of all these things, which is one eternal and immutable. And the fullness of perf of infinite love and infinite happiness, which are one and the same thing. So we're not losing anything. We're just losing what we know, basically. Yeah. We're losing the appearance and gaining the reality. Thank you very much. Can I make a quick interjection here, Michael? Yes. We had a discussion last time, and um, and just sort of uh, because we talked about how uh, there are moments uh, when we're doing ordinary activities when we uh, sort of we do them without actually being aware that we're doing them. Yes. So sort of a life goes on without our actually being aware of it. Yes. But uh, more concretely, I was thinking of a of particular meditative experiences which are in a very active state, where say. Um, one goes into, uh, um, this is a temporary state, which goes into where one is not aware of the world as such, um, as an object, you know, sort of this differentiated thing. It's a sort of, um, there is some sort of awareness, but it's not of anything. And one, and I realized, at least in my case, I realized after about 30 seconds, it was a very intense, sudden experience. Uh, 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 where for about 30 seconds, maybe a little bit more, I'm not sure, um, I managed to move and do things uh, with several other people uh, from one place to another, you know, moved with them and uh, negotiated corners and so on and so forth. And um, But in that period of 30 seconds, I had no awareness of um, sort of I wasn't actually aware of those things, and, and I and I realized this only later that this never happened before. That for that period uh, there was no awareness of doing anything or of things happening, and yet everything happened perfectly yeah. okay. And I mean, this is something which happens in our everyday life in a more sort of mundane way. That yeah. uh, we might be walking, might be driving, and we realize afterwards that we weren't really aware that we were doing those things, and yeah. it was going on, perhaps with the slightest bit of attention but in this case i think the attention was actually meditatively centered uh, elsewhere yeah. it had gone into some sort of a thing and uh, uh, and yet everything was happening and i often wondered and this was sort of relevant to the question which was just asked that for the jnani i'm not saying this is a jnani experience it's not but uh, you know we sort of draw these parallels uh, from our own that there might, in fact, as uh, you've often said, or as Amnon's often said, that the world does not really exist. There is only awareness. And yet life goes on. Um, but because, <laughs> there's always this, because there's always this thing that, look, the body is there, the sense faculties are there, everything yeah. is there. So this person from the outside must be perceiving and living and doing all these various things. There must be some perception going on 
and the person must be aware of uh, these perceptions and this life, this motion and yeah. this life going on. But I was in fact wondering after, you know, in relation to that, that particular experience I have, that in fact, uh, you know, for the Gyani, they're so steeped in, in awareness or self-awareness that that is a very, whatever, luminous, vibrant, whatever, you know, it yeah. might be. And that life just goes on as it does. Um, and so for the Gyani, it's not really going on or anything, you know. We are watching uh, sort of the Gyani saying and doing all these things, but for the Gyani, it's really perhaps, perhaps it doesn't really exist in a very real sense that there isn't an awareness of what's going on. I don't know. Yeah. It was just a, it was just a sort of an inference from um, yeah, the experiences yeah. which I've had, yeah. and I thought it was quite, you know, it's sort of a step by step when we're driving, when we're walking, you know, very often we're not aware, you know, yeah. you know we move from place to the other. If we're always away, we probably wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, wouldn't do anything really, uh, and then there are these these meditative states in which uh, we're not aware of doing things, and yet things go on, and we're sort of steeped in some kind of awareness, so to speak. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but even to say vinyani is so steeped in awareness, vinyani is that awareness. That that is vinyani. We see vinyani as a person, but vinyani is not in vinyani's experience. There is only jnana, and jnana is nothing other than that. Exactly. So yeah. we, we, with our mind, we cannot adequately understand these things. That's why it's only by, as Bhagavan said, becoming food is seeing. It's only when we lose ourselves completely, lose ourselves as ego completely, when we are completely swallowed by that infinite light of pure awareness, but all these things will become clear. Until then, our, 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 our understanding is inevitably limited. Uh, Michael, the, yeah. actually, that does clarify a lot. Uh, should we end on that note? Yes, very good. Yeah. We started with pure awareness and ended with pure yeah. awareness. As ego, we rose from pure awareness and we will eventually... <laughs> um, uh, merge back into pure awareness. That's the whole that, the whole story of our life. So pure awareness is the beginning and the end, and in the middle is only pure awareness. Om namo bhagavate sri